Right, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Susan Lamarca. For those of you that don't know me, it's my pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon to the second of our reading forums um, for the School Library Association. And that's the first thing I have to say. The uh, Ivanhoe Girls Grammar are taking some photos for their LinkedIn page in terms of social media. If any of you don't want them to use the photo, can you please let us know, um, just to make sure we uh, we use the photos or they use the photos that, that you're happy with. Um, it's always nice, I think, to promote a slab event, so I hope you don't mind being part of that. So this is our reading forum series, as I said, the second one. I will just pop over here. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have gone around that way. Just remind you that there are two more. I know some of you have actually subscribed to the whole series, but those of you that haven't may wish to come uh, to one of the other events. We have uh, an event in Term 3 in September at Kew Primary School. And we'll be looking at a, a panel there, a panel discussion there on reading promotion and a focus on competitions. Number of guests, not all confirmed yet, but will all be. Those of you that get our newsletter will see all the details as they come out. Our last event in the fall will actually be uh, at, uh, at the Dream Factory at Slab's offices, at the, using the rooms above the Slab offices. And we'll be looking at graphic novels at that event. Haven't organised everybody for that yet, so it's open slather as to what's going to happen there. All very wonderful. This afternoon we have um, action-packed. Uh, the forums are always uh, short and sharp. Um, hopefully lots of really great ideas and introducing you to some new books in a very short space of time. I hope you've had a chance to browse the bookshop and you can certainly do that at the end of the event as well. Our order is, uh, is, is um, I never know, magazine, zine making. So zine making with Karis first, then we're going to have Ingrid, we're going to have um, Nicola via video, Kirsty, and then the bookshop at the end, 10 books in, in 10 minutes. So I'm sure you're all very aware of the program. So it is my absolute delight to introduce Karis, our first speaker, wonderful librarian, and who has a very exciting role this year, being uh, a, a librarian across two schools, yes. um, both new schools, Richmond High and Paran High School. I'm just writing an article at the moment for FYI about, about it, okay, so exactly. you can read all about it so in the next edition. <laughs> two new schools and to be shared across two new very interesting campuses. And she's also very involved with SLAB and very involved with the CBCA. And she is here today to share with us what she knows, and I think Sam has made a rather oh, good slide. Do you like that slide? No, person? can you don't move like that on? Slide? He said, I, is that Thanks, okay? Sam, but... <laughs> but I, said, I think she'll like that. She looks very official. No? Okay. no. Thank you. So my well, library was being renovated as well, it? so it was very empty. Oh, I thought you looked very... Great. Yeah. yeah. I thought you looked fantastic. So if you can join me... It's quite embarrassing. Uh, thank you so much for um, having me today, Susan and Slav. Um, I actually presented about zines at a Slav conference a couple of years ago, um, and only five people came to the session. The five people that came were really into it, and they were like, everyone should know about this, why are there only five people here? So there you go, I've been invited to um, do it again. Was anybody at that session? No? Okay, great. So, <laughs> repeat it a little bit, but with some um, new information. So, yes, I'm a school librarian at Richmond and Paran High, but I'm also involved in the zine scene, uh, and nice work on pronouncing it correctly. Most people say zine. <laughs> 
which is fine, I guess. But yeah, zine as in magazine. I've uh, been involved in the zine scene in Melbourne since I've lived here, so for the past six years. And there's an amazing zine community in Melbourne, very rich. I think probably the biggest in Australia. Um, and I was also involved when I lived in Perth and before that in London as well, which was where I was first introduced to zines. Uh, so for anyone that doesn't know, I thought I better clarify pretty early. I'm sorry if you do know what zines are. Um, but if you don't know, zines are self-published, handmade booklets, usually reproduced via photocopier. And I have a couple of examples of some of my favorites um, that I'll just ask you guys to pass around so you can have a look. Um, I didn't do a PowerPoint. Uh, within the spirit of zines, it's all handmade, so <laughs> um, you can pass those around and have a little look. Uh, so those zines actually come from my Richmond High School Library zine collection, which is just getting started, this tiny little box. Um, I've had zine collections at all of the school libraries that I've worked at, but obviously I've only been um, at my new schools for a term and a bit, so early days, but um, that's my little zine collection uh, from Richmond as well. Uh, so most zines are produced in very small circulation, uh, usually in, in editions fewer than 100. And the primary intent of them is, is not about making profit, um, but it's motivated by a passion or a desire for self-expression. Um, basically, no one's making any money off these things. Um, I'm certainly not. I've been making zines for many years, but it's a labour of love um, and it's all about getting your ideas out there and, and I suppose, self-publishing yourself. Um, zines have served as a significant medium of communication in various subcultures, uh, feminism, political subcultures, um, and they frequently draw inspiration from a kind of do-it-yourself, handmade philosophy. Uh, they have their origins in science fiction fanzines of the 1930s, and if you ever go to the State Library of Victoria, they have some um, amazing zines from the 30s and 40s. Um, and then they re-emerged in the 70s with punk and feminist movements. Um, more recently, they've sort of gone through this um, other re-emergence, uh, mostly in the form of comics or fanzines or purzines, which is what I write. Uh, so basically publish my diary, uh, personal zines. Uh, I just sort of write about what I know um, and my life in general. Uh, so zines have been collected by libraries, um, national libraries, state libraries, academic libraries uh, for decades. And some of these libraries collect anything, um, whereas others have themed collections. So for example, um, Barnard College in New York, they have one of the most famous zine collections, which is um, a collection of zines written by women, particularly women of colour. Um, and they define their collection as personal and political publications on activism, anarchism, feminism and similar topics. So really cool. And as I said, the State Library of Victoria has their own zine collection. Um, it's the biggest in Australia. Uh, but the difference between these kind of larger zine collections and, and one you might have in a school library, like my little tub, um, is quite substantial. So at the State Library, the collection is uh, not available to be browsed or, or, or borrowed, um, except on prior arrangements. You can take, I've taken groups of kids there before and they've opened up the collection, but it's not open for the public um, on any given day. And there's a legal deposit scheme with the collection. So each thing created in Victoria, or even Australia, I think it might be, um, is required to submit a copy to the library um, for collection. And they collect these zines um, as a sort of local history uh, collection. Uh, the stories found in zines can't really be found anywhere else, and they're an excellent primary source material and cultural artefacts. So for example, a couple of years ago, um, 
My boyfriend went out for the day and locked me in our apartment. He took both sets of keys and he needed a key to exit our apartment. Uh, so I was stuck in our apartment for a whole day. So I decided to write a zine about it. Uh, it's called Locked In. Uh, I think there's a copy of it in there. Um, and I lived on Lenox Street in Richmond, right near the um, Housing Commission flats. And I just sort of recorded everything that I saw out my window for an entire day. And I had a librarian contact me um, and say, that's the kind of local history that you wouldn't get anywhere else. Um, and somebody reading that zine in 100 years would get a really good idea of what life was like in Richmond um, on that given day. So that sort of gives you an example of, of um, what zines are, I suppose. Uh, so as I say, in school libraries, the collections tend to be quite different. Zines don't have to be archived or collected in any meaningful way. But I mean that um, in, a, in a good, it's a good thing. Um, the fact that zines are ephemeral um, is actually really more in line with the original intention of zines. And actually, I know a lot of zine makers that um, don't believe that zines should be collected in libraries because they are ephemeral. Um, they're just meant to last temporarily and shared and read without the constraints of cataloging uh, or formal circulation. Um, so school libraries can act as distributors of zines, making them available to students, but not worrying too much about creating uh, lasting collections. And that's really exciting. Um, there's a lot of potential there. So why should you have a zine collection in your school? Um, for one, zines are really great, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, um, to help with engagement and reluctant readers. Zines support access for all readers. Um, they're a really good transition text for struggling readers, which allows them to start with something sort of easier to swallow in a big, thick novel. Uh, the format is easier to grapple with and the handmade aspect can really appeal to um, those kinds of students that might be struggling. Um, but on the other side of things, it, it can also broaden students' reading into different formats and genres. Um, most students haven't experienced zines before, I've found, um, and for strong readers that like to get their hands on everything and anything, um, it can open their eyes to a whole new world of reading and devouring information. Um, so, for example, uh, I had a kid who had found a whole group of a whole um, bunch of zines that was written by that were written by uh, people from the LGBTIQ community and like, memoir writing from um, people that identify um, in that community, and that can be a really great thing that maybe isn't being addressed in other collections. Um, zine collections also allow students to contribute to the library by making their own zines and adding them to the collection. Uh, zines give students a platform for expression, a, a chance to be the boss of their own ideas and the opportunity to create something valuable, something that can become a part of your school library's collection or sometimes even bigger. So I've had students that have made zines and now sell them at Sticky Institute, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, another justification for having zines in your school library and something that I'm very passionate about is the continuing relevance of print media. Um, there is such an intense focus on the digital in schools, as we know, um, and that's great and valid, but it's really important not to neglect the value of offline reading and craft. Um, in my experience, students love to embrace the DI spirit of zines and zine making, and a lot of the time enjoy spending time off their screens. Uh, a few years ago, actually, the ABC published an article about the most recent resurgence of zines being directly in correlation with young people disliking the experience of being trolled online um, or dealing with online bullies um, or other sort of negativity in online spaces. And in rejection of that medium, young people um, are once again turning to offline spaces to create and publish their art and writing, hence the popularity of zines. 
Uh, so just a few logistics now. Um, the number one place to buy zines in Melbourne is the Sticky Institute. Has anybody been there before? Great. So it's um, under the DeGrave subway, under Flinders Street Station, basically. Um, although I know with the metro um, renovations it will be moved, but um, not sure where. But it's been there for, I think, 15 years. Um, it's run by volunteers. It opened nearly 20 years ago. Um, it's open till six o'clock during the week and on the weekends, um, and they've stocked over 12,000 zines on basically every topic imaginable, international zines as well. Uh, the people that work there are really amazing. Like I say, it's all volunteer run, um, and they're really good at helping you curate a little collection for yourself. Um, obviously, zines can carry some pretty mature content. Um, even I write kind of mature stuff sometimes that I wouldn't share with my children. Um, but Sticky is really, really great at helping you curate a collection that's education friendly. Um, I did that with them with my first zine collection um, and they helped me build um, build a little collection of stuff that was appropriate for school aged children, uh, primary or secondary. Um, a couple of the people that work there are teachers as well so um, they're really knowledgeable and can be really helpful. You can purchase online as well from them. And they have a yearly festival, the Festival of the Photocopier, which runs in February each year. Uh, usually at the Town Hall this year, it was in Carlton. It was a two-day festival this year. I was there both days and it was incredible. There were over 300 stalls of people selling their zines. It's a huge and really exciting community. Um, zines usually cost between 50 cents and $10, but a lot of them are free as well. Um, there's a really long-running weekly zine that's published in Melbourne that you can find for free. It's called You. Um, and I've seen it around, often comes in like a brown paper bag and you open it. Um, the guy that makes it, um, it's made anonymously, but I know him, he leaves it around Melbourne for people to find um, throughout, and he's, he's written one of these every week for, I think it must be nearly 15 years now, so pretty incredible. Uh, he actually asked me to write one once and I wrote an edition of you, which was really um, and yeah, you can also find them on places like Etsy, um, other online shops, and there's other zine shops around Australia as well. So there's plenty of opportunity to, to purchase them. Um, I choose not to catalogue my zines uh, because of the ephemeral nature of the material, but you could catalogue them if you chose. Uh, Alia actually has a great uh, document about how to catalogue zines on their website, which I'm sure you can Google and find. Um, but if you did want to catalogue them, yeah, a simple record would be great. At the State Library of Victoria, it's just in accession order, um, and then they store them in um, big plastic tubs or archival tub tubs. Um, displaying them, there's obviously a lot of opportunities. Um, if you go on Pinterest and put in zine display, there's all kinds of ways that you could display them in your library. I choose the box because it's transportable and the kids pull it around the library and read um, from there. It's pretty easy to maintain and store. Um, and then, yeah, of course, promotion is really important. Um, I think once you get teachers um, from all departments and the kids interested and, and sort of um, let them know about the defiant, rebellious nature of zines and what they represent, people get really excited about the medium. So they're a pretty easy thing to promote, um, I think, in the library. Um, again, Sticky is a great resource and they have zine makers that can come out to your schools and run workshops. Um, so I would say get in touch with them um, and get involved in the community. 
And then lastly, I just wanted to touch on how zines can be used in library programs, such as makerspaces, and even tied into the curriculum. Um, it's a really simple and easy to organize makerspace program, a little zine session. Uh, I've just seen the amazing makerspace room here, um, and I can imagine a, a brilliant zine workshop in there. <laughs> um, they're not too messy or hard to create. You just need some paper, some scissors, and you know some some pens and maybe some collage material, and that's it. You've got a great little um, easy makerspace program. Um, I haven't done this at my current school, but in past schools, I sort of set up pop-up zine-making areas at lunchtime as well. So I'd put the collection there for people to browse, and then have the materials available for anyone to just come along and, and make zines at whenever they feel like it. Um, I've collaborated with different departments on zine making before. So last year at Glen Ira College for Book Week, I collaborated with the art department and we had a zine making workshop based around the theme of Book Week, which was find your treasure. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, so we um, implored the kids to create a mini zine, which I'm going to show you how to make in a second, um, based on the book week theme, and then we judged which was the most creative um, piece. And all we had there was, you know, very basic art supplies and some collaging material. And the kids came up with the most incredible things just in one lunchtime. One girl wrote this poem um, and then illustrated it, and I just will never forget it. So it is a um, really lovely um, little initiative to do. Um, and yeah, in the past I've also got kids to send their zines out into the real world, so had them sell their zines at Sticky. Um, a couple of years ago when I worked at Korowa, uh, we worked on a collaborative zine with my writers group and we sent it out to a couple of different authors that the um, girls admired. We sent a copy to Alice Pung and she wrote back to us and then when we saw her at the writers festival, she was talking about this amazing zine that we'd put together. So it is a really nice way to, um, to get the kids' work out into the real world as well um, and to have a bit of engagement with other creatives. Um, and then, of course, things like the Writers' Festival Schools Program, the Stella's Schools Program. I've been to quite a few of those festivals and events where they run zine workshops for young people uh, so you can get your kids involved in those kinds of things as well. Um, I'm just going to really quickly show you how to make a mini zine. So yesterday I realised that I didn't have an example, so I made this one up on my way out of work. It just took me a couple of minutes. I've put little examples around if you wanted to have a look. Uh, so this is a couple of young adult and middle grade fiction recommendations. Pretty boring title, sorry I only had a few minutes. Uh, so this is as easy as an A4 piece of paper. Um, this is what the template looks like. That's all you need. Um, a front page, a back page, a little bit of content in between. Um, and then if you fold the zine in half and then in um, fours that way <laughs> first and then get, a, um, get some scissors. Yeah, sure. So I put out some examples um, which feel free to take. Um, some of them are actually fold into mini zines as well. So they're on the tables around. Um, it's literally just one little cut down the middle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, once everyone's got paper, I'll show you. <laughs> I think they're keen. I think they're keen. Yeah, great. Okay, got time. Um, and I've got time for questions in a little bit as well if anybody has any. Uh, scissors? Yep. Hang on, we've got some scissors on the end there. We will need some scissors at one point. 
but that's the kind of thing that I like. <laughs> Juicy. <laughs> So if you have one of these two, they actually, they're templates for zines, so you could use those as well um, as the coloured paper. So I'll just really quickly show you, it's so simple. If you look at um, this one, uh, so <laughs> if you have any A4 piece of paper, um, you fold it in half that way. I've already folded this one, which is why it's flat. Well, yeah, you can do that other way. And then um, in half again, so in like quarters. I should have practiced this before I didn't. Uh, and then open it up and then fold it in half that way. <laughs> Mine's already pre-folded. This is what I prepared earlier. <laughs> um, so take it back to that. <laughs> yeah. So once you've made all your folds, um, take it back and then you cut just halfway. Then the next bit's the really tricky bit. <laughs> I'm going to make it look easy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and then cut that middle bit. <laughs> yep. Uh, so this is the really tricky bit. So open it all the way again. Um, I should have done one that's already not pre-folded. Um, so you kind of, <laughs> I don't know how to do this best. You push it in to make a diamond like that. And then to make a cross. And then you just need a flat surface to fold it down. And that's an eight page mini zine. <laughs> Again? Have you cut it? Yep. So you hold it like that and then you push it in. So diamond, cross. Yeah, you could, yeah. So a lot of zine makers that make mini zines as well, they would make an eight page zine like that and then do something on the back side, like maybe an A4 poster. Uh, so there's space there as well. I've seen lots of zines like that. There might be something in the collection. Yeah, totally. You could do one on a, any size sheet. Yeah. Obviously, this is just one way to make a zine, but it's a really good lunchtime, nice and quick, um, and it all comes together quite nicely. Right. And then, yeah, as Ruth just said, this is really great and easy to photocopy as well. So um, if you photocopy that, cut up a whole bunch, all of a sudden you've got, you know, a series, your own little zine series. So... 
Yeah, so yesterday I just wrote this little one and there's a few floating around if you want to take them, go for it. Um, I just wrote a couple of the best books that I've read recently and I was, as I was writing this yesterday afternoon I thought I'm going to do this with my book club next week. I'm going to get them to all um, choose the six best books that they've read lately, write a little review, illustrate it, hopefully better than I illustrated it, <laughs> um, and then I'll photocopy them and they can all share their recommendations in zine form. So um, yeah, it's a really nice little opportunity. Does anybody have any questions about any of that? Right? Okay. Thank you. That's it. Does anyone have any questions, Paris? No? Yes. Do you purchase most of your Beyonce's Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, a lot of them I've from my personal collection. Or sometimes I just get on Twitter and say, hey, I'm a school librarian, I'm looking for donations of zines. And I've had people, uh, zine makers, donate things before. Um, when you go to festi zine festivals and things, there are a lot of people giving away zines for free. Uh, as I say, you can find you throughout the city, that one. Um, and when you go to Sticky as well, they have a whole section of free zines, so you can stock up from that little section um, to, to start something. Uh, but they're, yeah, they're very cheap as well, obviously. I think if you have $100, that would probably be enough to get a little box like that. Um, I think that's what I started with, just $100 zine collection as a starting point and then when you have kids start to make them obviously your zine collection grows with their work which is really cool. So, when you're printing it, how do you get one side this way and one side that way? Um, do you around with the table? Or? Yeah exactly that's what I did on Word but I think a lot of the time like so yeah yesterday when I made this um, this one up very quickly on my way out from work, I just did it on Word. So that was an A4 document on Word. But normally when I make zines, I would just um, print out the words on a normal piece of paper and then cut and paste them into the zine. Um, so collaging is, is probably a better way to do it with, with the kids rather than fiddling around with formatting on Word or Photoshop or whatever. Um, it's meant to be about, you know, the cut and paste and... The other thing I love about zines is that they're flawed. You know, sometimes my zines don't line up perfectly or I make spelling mistakes, as my grandma pointed out once when I sent her a zine of mine. Um, but it doesn't matter. They're self-published. They're flawed. That's the nature of them. And I think kids really respond well to that. Yeah, it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, it can be choppy cutting or spelling mistakes or whatever. Just a bit of fun, really. Wonderful. Well, look, I think um, I've learned so much. I don't know about you. In a very short <laughs> amount of time, all that fantastic history. And it's just such a wonderful thing, I think, for all of us to take back to our libraries. Um, so if you would join me in thanking Carol. Sorry, Carol, one more question. And sorry, I didn't announce, but um, all of our forums are part of our podcast uh, series. So the whole event is being taped, and so you, I will send you a link to that later on, so you can always listen to Karis's lovely voice all over again. I'm happy to, um, if you want to email me, anyone wants to email me at any stage as well with any questions. Excellent. Yep. Oh, wonderful. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Karis. Really exciting. So our next speaker is the wonderful Ingrid, who I think is hiding on the back. Um, it's really I wasn't hiding. <laughs> no, 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 no. Surveying uh, from the from Surveying. the So Ingrid is going to talk to us uh, about her uh, most recent book, Songbird, and she's from Test. So, join me. Welcome, Ingrid, please.
Hi. Uh, great to be here. Um, I'm Ingrid Laguna, and I'm going to set the timer on my clock so I don't go over time. And this is my little book, Songbird. So I'm really excited because um, the book just came out on Tuesday. And um, when you put your heart and soul into writing a book, and then you finally see it in print, and it's ready for sharing with the world and with young readers, it feels really good. So um, I'll just uh, start by telling you a bit about my background and what inspired me to write Songbird. Um, so basically I've spent the last six years teaching at an intensive English language school. Um, most of the, that time has been in Broadmeadows where my students have come from Iraq and Syria. Um, some of that time has been at Collingwood where there's been a broad range of ethnicities. Um, prior to teaching, I've got quite a diverse life and work experience that goes way back. Uh, music, background, performance. Um, so as a teacher, I've used music and creative strategies to work with my students, which has been really fantastic in the context of having students that have come from trauma often, who have not, not left their home countries by choice. So a lot of refugee background children. Um, so when I got my teaching qualification, um, the Intensive English Language School job was my first teaching job. So it was a steep learning curve for me. And um, what I found most striking was, and, and it struck me over and over again, um, was that these kids were so buoyant and full of fight and full of energy and full of hope. Um, I, would, I would find out things about them that they had recently lost, lost loved ones or that they were living with a sibling and they didn't know when their parents were coming or all, all sorts of things that were not conceivable really to me. Um, and yet, their innate courage and resilience was striking. Um, and it was daily. And, and their willingness to trust and their willingness to build a relationship with myself or my colleague teachers, their willingness to, to, you know, to be loving and, and you know, happy. And um, so Songbird is about um, an 11-year-old girl called Jamila who has come from Iraq with her mother, Safir, and her little brother, Amir. Um, they, it's 2015, and they find themselves in a housing commission flat in Reservoir, and she's three weeks into primary school. I've never been to Iraq, but I have had spent uh, many years building relationships with these kids, and that has given me insight into the kinds of struggles that many of them have at school here, or in life here. For example, um, very often the kids um, speak a lot more English than their parents, and therefore, um, and, and I just must acknowledge that I'm, I'm sure this is not news to many of you. Um, many schools, in, many primary schools and secondary schools are very multicultural, and so I, I understand that I, um, other people know what I'm talking about. Um, so, Jamila has a lot more English than her mother. Her mother has also um, got 
post-traumatic stress. It's, just, it's not how I put it in the book, but she's quite, um, she's quite burdened, she's, she's depressed, and she leans on, on, well, Jamila is required to stay home from school, or gets called home from school. And this, is, this causes, her, it causes her shame and embarrassment, but it also um, it holds her back in her schoolwork, um, which is not helpful. Um, she's trying to fit in. Um, so the book has themes that young readers can resonate with. It's sort of um, eight plus, eight to 11 or 12 is probably a good age range. As we know, there's such, an, uh, such a range of, of readers in any, like, 10 eight-year-olds or 10 nine-year-olds, you have such a range of readers. But um, so she's often called home to help her mother, uh, to help with her little brother, uh, to help to go to appointments, um, to translate. Um, and her father, Kasim, is a journalist and he's been, he's missing, he's in hiding, he's not with them. She doesn't know when he will come. She's been wrenched apart from her best friend in the world, Mina. She doesn't know when she will see her again or if she's safe. So the story's built around, so the, the character came to me very easily um, uh, based on the kind, so she sort of embodies a lot of the qualities of a lot of my students and the, some of their stories. In the story, um, Jamila has a gift and this is really what uh, gets her through and that is that she can sing. She has a, a stunning voice. And it's not that she has a stunning voice, it's important, but it's what singing does for her. And when she finds out that there's a, a school choir and she can join the choir, um, she joins the choir and that gives her something. And she meets a girl and she makes a friend and so there's hope. Um, and she has sort of a reason, she has a reason to, to go to school. and to, She has an opportunity to be respected by her peers again because at her home school in Iraq, she was one of the brightest kids. She always had her hand up at the school in Iraq. But English isn't her real language, as she puts it. Arabic is her language. So all of a sudden, because of language, um, she's not at the top of her class. But in the choir, it, it doesn't matter. She can sing, she can sing, and, and it, it's amazing. So then when there's the opportunity for her to perform a solo in the, um, in the concert, well, this is, this is amazing. But then there's great drama, which I can't give away too much, but maybe the opportunity to perform at the concert is jeopardised. So the very day of the concert, Mama insists that family is number one and that Jamila must go with Mama to greet Uncle Elias the first person in their family who maybe is coming to Australia. They've already spent days on a couple of dates um, waiting to see if Baba was going to come because they had heard that maybe he was coming. So they've watched hundreds, maybe thousands of people they've watched coming through the international arrivals gate waiting for Baba. Who, she's very, very close to Baba and they've been very fearful for his life. Um, so Mama says on the night before the concert, what concert? Well, you know, this is some family. Have you, have you forgotten? And, and so Jamila has to act. Um, so there's other events. Uh, of course, um, it's number one in a book for, th for this readership. I have a daughter who's just turned 12. That the story is engaging. It has to be an engaging read. It can't be um, purely educational. And um, you know, for adults maybe you know that's interesting. 
but it has to, the story has to be right at the front. Thanks to my editor, Jane Pearson. She's um, Ingrid, you know, put that at the back. But yes, the circumstances are what they are and, and we're aware of them throughout. But the action, the story has to keep moving. To keep kids engaged and to keep them turning the pages, it has to be a lively story. And through that story, you've got to keep the vo voice. You've got to stay close to the, the main character. Um, I'm not sure how I'm going for time, but... Oh, yeah, fine. No problem. Um, so I, um, as an educator, I love um, working with kids, so I am available for um, school bookings. I've got a raft of reading and writing activities. Um, with my students um, at the Collingwood English Language School, I use um, relaxation activities, I use drama games, I use, I've taught phonics doing body percussion. So, because you've got to be creative with kids, because you've got all sorts of people in the room that respond to different things. And once you've established a safe environment where kids feel like that they're prepared to take speaking risks, because you have to feel safe to take a speaking risk, to say a word that sounds funny, that's not anything like your language, you've got to feel very safe to do that. So that's critical in a language learning environment, and especially where kids have come from what they've come from. They can't learn anything if they've got anxiety. So I have found that drama games and activity have been, activities have been great for um, Building trust, loosening people up. I think it's the works for adults as well. I could get you all up right now and I swear it would be a good thing, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Susan's going, no, Ingrid, don't. Please don't. But, um, and they're non-threatening non and they can't be threatening activities. And I wouldn't do it unless I know that everyone in the room is safe and I offer students the opportunity to, to not do it or perhaps stand with me and be a judge, for example. Um, uh, so... There's wonderful resources that have been created by my amazing publishing house, Text Publishing. Shalene is the marketing manager if you need to talk to her at all. So these resources are available on the Text website for free. Wonderful resources that can be taken into the classroom straight away and used immediately um, in association with reading the book. They're great activities. This is, the, I think there's about a dozen or so here that if anyone's interested they can come and take a copy. Um, and they, they go with the book. Um, so, as far as um, using the book in the classroom, look, everyone has their own strategies and their own um, effective tools for teaching, and I know this is a librarian's event. Um, so, um, look, it's great that there's something that teachers can just go to and, and use that. I thought I'd just read um, a little tiny bit from the book so you get a sense of the kind of the level of sophistication of the writing. Um, so I just chose this because um, when the book starts, Jamila is, um, has been asked by her teacher, as have all the other kids in the room, to give a very short talk about herself. So all the, all the students in the class are asked to give a small talk about themselves, not just Jamila. But in her circumstances, what does she choose to talk about? How much does she tell? She doesn't know where her dad is. I mean, who doesn't know where their dad is? She doesn't know, she hasn't, she's missing her, her lifelong best friend. She's been wrenched apart from. She hasn't made a friend, like she's been there three weeks. She's sort of, she knows people's names, but um, 
So she's scared about this talk. She's apprehensive. What should she say? So she's a little bit spontaneous when she gives this talk. Um, Good morning, she said. So she's standing up the front of the room. She's, this is after a girl who's just come up and said, you know, I've got a cat called Fancy and my mum's a vet nurse and she's done, I've been doing tap lessons since I was five and here's a tap move. And she's done a little tap move and then done a curtsy. And Jamila's going, yeah, you know. Jamila's going, how can I? I don't have that confidence. Anyway. Good morning, she said, taking a deep breath. My name is Jamila. I live in Reservoir with my mama, I mean my mum, and my brother. Finn recrossed his legs and used his fingertips to prop his eyelids open, as if he was so bored he would fall asleep. Jamila felt uneasy. She put her hand on her dad's watch, and then she raised her voice. We came to Melbourne from Iraq two months ago. Iraq is a beautiful country. There are mountains and lakes and rivers. There is a golden mosque. And Baghdad, it's a big city. On hot nights, people eat ice cream in the streets and boys sometimes swim in the canal. There's a fun park with a big wheel covered in lights. There's music, drumming and singing. Also, there are, Jamila hesitated, there are bombs. Finn sat up straight. Alice's eyes opened wide. They make a big noise, said Jamila, and there are flashes of light. Lan's mouth fell open. Miss Dana looked worried or sad. Jamila wasn't sure which. You hope they'll be far off, or if they're close, she said, you hope you can get away. People are scared, but Iraq is a beautiful country. Jamila returned to her seat. She thought of all the wonderful things about Iraq. She, rem she remembered looking for treasures at the crowded markets and the smell of spices. She could picture the giant sacks brim brimming with white beans and broad beans and red and orange lentils and the glittering river. Baba said Baghdad was once called the jewel of the Islamic world. Now it was George's turn to stand up and speak, but Jamila hardly listened. She was worried. She had said too much. She wanted her classmates to understand her and to like her. Jamila knew Finn had chocolate spread on white bread in his lunchbox most days, and that Miranda was greeted at the end of each school day by her big brother and a dog called Leopold that only had three legs. She knew Lan preferred odd socks over matching ones and that Alice had glasses in her pencil case she slipped on at school pickup time. She knew who was friends with who and that she was still the new girl after three whole weeks who was not really friends with anyone. Now, with her talk, had she made this space between her and everyone else even wider than it was before? Um, I chose to read that, that section because what's one of the things that really struck me in my teaching experience was that when I spoke with students about their home countries, about Iraq, Syria, Kenya, South Sudan. Like, we were talking about likes and dislikes, how to express likes and dislikes. And I'd put up a slide with a picture of an Australian beach and I'd say, I love Australian beaches, that's my timer. Um, I'll, I'll just finish up. I love Australian beaches. And, and I'd say, do you have beaches in your country? I've never been to your country. And what I got overwhelmingly was this pride and love of their country, of course, of course. It's not what we get when we have images, when we think of Iraq or Syria, or not what I go, or many African countries where there are, there are problems. But what, what I've experienced firsthand is this great pride and, and this wanting to convey to me how fantastic the cities are or the food or the, you know, the clothes. Um, and, and that was, you know, that was 
I guess, you know, really unexpected for me. Not that, not that I knew what they, how they would talk about their countries, but it's certainly something that struck me and I, um, that's why she, she spoke that way. So my point was, it's as just one small activity you can do with students to say, is this what you might have heard of Iraq, if anything? I mean, the young kids, you know. But anyway, um, this is, in my view, an ideal middle grade um, text featuring a diverse voice for young readers that maybe gives young readers some insight into what it might be like to flee your country for fear of your life, to be wrenched apart from your best friend in the world, to not know where your father is or if he is safe, and maybe just be, provoke some thinking and so many activities that can be carried out um, in response to this. Thank you. It's a beautiful cover, thank you to, to uh, Textbook, to um, Imogen Stubbs was the design, yes. Mm, yeah, beautiful. Now the next thing we are going to do is we're going to have this young lady via video. Hold on Sam, don't press anything. Right. No, just wait. Hold up. Don't wait. wait there, do it for me. Um, well, I just want to tell them who Nicola is before we begin. Now the, the way this, be, uh, some of you may remember a journal called Viewpoint. Remember, remember Viewpoint? Now, Nicola was a, one of our feature reviewers in Viewpoint regularly, and that's how I got to know Nicola. Um, and I was invited to the launch of this picture book, and, and so I obviously went along. Um, I don't know, you may recognise the name as well. She, quite re she writes quite regularly in The Age as well. She often has um, commentary pieces in The Age. And so I, um, I've been trying to promote this book because I feel it's uh, rather important. And the 100% of the... Um, 100% of the profit from this book is going to uh, rural, rural Australians for refugees. That's so I wanted to inform you of that. You have a flyer about it in your bags. Um, I didn't ask Graham to get into the bookshop because it's not being sold on normal release. It's kind of just around. So you'll need to um, go to the flyer to be able to order it. But Nicola lives in Apollo Bay. She's a teacher. She couldn't join us, but she's joining us via technology. So she's done us a little video, um, and that was why I just wanted to explain who she was before we began. So this is the book, A Grain of Hope. I'll pass that around, this is my copy, but I thought you might like to see it, and she's going to talk to us about it. Thanks, Sam. I'm a teacher and an author and a writer, and I teach at Apollo Bay College, so unfortunately I couldn't make it to the forum today, although I would have really loved to. Um, so. Susan has been really supportive of my new book and suggested that maybe I could um, record something and send it just so instead of doing my spiel in person, I could do it in video form. So thanks for listening. Um, my first book, Baby Days, was for early childhood. Um, that sold just over 23,000 copies. Um, and at the same time, I worked on another book that was sort of my heart book um, called A Grain of Hope. And it's recently launched at Readings in Melbourne with Julian Burnside. And I wanted to let you know about it so that maybe um, you might consider having it in your school library, which is sort of the place where I think it fits the best. Um, probably four years ago now, I went to a festival of hope organised by a really passionate refugee advocate in Apollo Bay. And I was fortunate to hear Julian Burnside talk and I'm not sure if any of you have heard him talk before, but he's extremely articulate and passionate about refugees. 
And as with many things, as with speeches, you take home one or two things. And one of the ones that really stuck in my mind was, in Australia, we treat animals better than we treat refugees. And I'd sort of known a little bit about what was happening. I think part of me almost didn't want to know because I couldn't bear to think about it. But um, it's one of those cases where once you know, you can't unknow it and you feel like you need to do something. And I went home that night and thought about that particular statement and I began working on what has become this picture book for older readers. And um, I'm going to be donating 100% of any profits of any sale of my sales um, to rural Australians for refugees so they can help in their excellent work that they do with refugees that arrive and also educating people about what's happening. Um, I had that thought of, uh, you know, as librarians and teachers, we know how important and powerful words are, but we also need to consider the power of silence. And I didn't feel like I could be silent on this issue. I wanted to be able to talk to children about what's happening in the world of politics and how um, we sort of lost, seem to have lost our humanity when it become, with, with regards to refugees. Whereas with animals, you see lots of stories on the news and people are quick to protect them, which is great. Um, but maybe we should remember that refugees are humans and we need to help them too. So what I thought I would do is read the book um, so you can see it. Um, and I'll talk to you a little bit about um, the teacher resource pack that I've come up with and how it might be used in a classroom situation. So. This is a grain of hope, um, illustrated by an amazing illustrator called Aldi Aguirre, who actually lives in the Philippines. Um, he's done a beautiful job with some watercolour um, illustrations. I was going to come a bit closer. And I've got down here, Hanan is an Arabic word for hope. Doc is pidgin English for dog, which is what they speak on Manus Island. And Abi is an Arabic word for father. What you'll notice before us, um, as I start reading, is that there are, it's a um, dual story told on facing pages, and there's Doc on the left-hand side and Hanan on the right. Unto a mother, a child was born. In a country on the other side of the world, there was born another. Doc tumbled and romped her way through each day with her brothers and sisters, returning to the solid warmth of her mother whenever she needed. Hanan toddled and toppled into the loving arms of her family. Someone was always ready and waiting with a big smile and love in their heart. Then one day, things changed for Doc. There was a new place to learn, an empty space where her mother had been. As time passed, the only thing that became certain was danger and sadness. People whispered and worried and disappeared, including Hanan's father. Often there was pain. Every day seemed to add another tiny crack in Hanan's heart, but she kept it hidden. She wanted to be strong like her Abi. Time passed. Doc always woke, hoping today would be better than yesterday. She dreamed of blue skies, soft grass beneath her paws, and a friendly pat now and then. 
Hanan's mother often called her my little sunshine because Hanan was so good at making her smile. Even though there wasn't much to smile about anymore. Today was particularly bad. Doc tried to slink inside the shadows and make herself invisible. The day limped unbearably to its end. The day had also been bad for Hanan. They had received the news that an uncle and cousin had been killed. Nowhere felt safe. Her mother cried all the time now. But someone had seen. And so Hanan's family came to a decision. One morning, a van arrived for Doc. Hanan's van arrived in the dark of the night. Doc's days became much kinder. She still dreamed of soft grass and blue skies, but at least there was a pact with every meal. Hanan's family began living in the shadows in between worlds. Faces peered through the wire, made noises, then moved on, until one day they didn't. These faces smiled and made happy sounds at Doc, and her heart swelled with hope. Strange people came and went, and there was a lot of talking, most of which Hanan didn't understand. Her mother was strong and scared and sad, all mixed together. Hanan stood quietly in the background, hugging her hope tightly to her chest. One day, keys jangled the gate to Doc's cage open and she was surrounded by happiness and laughter. Doc's new family gently bustled her into their car and she sat happily nestled between them, her heart swelling like a ripe peach. An alarm jolted Hanan and her mother awake. It was late at night and it was time to go. Bodies jostled, voices barked, people pushed, and then she was lifted from one boat to another. She took nothing but a little grain of hope tucked inside her heart. Their journey was smooth and short. It ended well. Their journey was long and hard and frightening. It ended before it should. Doc wakes happy every day. She stretches lazily in the sun after a snooze on the soft green grass. There are pats, rubs, walks, food, and best of all, love. She couldn't ask for anything more. Hanan wakes behind bars every day. There is a playground, a small library and patches of grass, but everywhere is surrounded by fence as far as the eye can see. Hanan sometimes wonders what is on the other side and hopes one day to find out. She wonders how long it will be. So it's not um, a joyful book for Hanan, obviously. Doc ends up with um, at least a happy ending. I've had a few people say, oh gosh, what age group would you read this to? Look, my, my son is seven and obviously we talk a lot about refugees in my house, but he definitely understands and can have a good discussion about what's happening and he asks really good questions. So I guess it depends also, <laughs> lights are going off. Um, it depends on how confident a teacher is in their knowledge of refugees, but you could definitely get a really good discussion with that middle to upper primary and definitely early secondary as a springboard into a lot of other topics. And that's what I've sort of tried to cover in my teacher resource pack. Um, 
I've sort of split it into different categories for English, visual literacy, because there are a lot of hidden symbols um, and allegories that Aldi's used in his illustrations. So things like um, little boats, origami boats, and the bird in the cage. That's um, sort of one of those ones I wanted him to concentrate on with that um, idea of freedom. So that even starts on the sort of introduction of page, the title page. Um, there's lots you could do on the creative arts side that I've got in my teacher resource pack um, as with drama and song and dance and the, even the fine arts, which is actually what I teach as well. Um, and I've got obviously lots of different ideas for, um, that you could use it for in the SOS area and even health and wellbeing. So there's obviously there's the pet side of things and then there's the refugee side. And it's a really... Um, be a useful book for World Refugee Day in June um, 19th or 20th, I can't remember, I think it's the 20th off the top of my head, that's in the teacher resource pack too. So the book's available um, on my website, I'm happy to invoice schools because I know there's a whole filling in 50,000 pieces of paper when you want to order anything um, or you can buy off the website and that you'll get a tax invoice if that's um, acceptable with your school. Um, readings are stocking it, Readings Kids, and I think Readings Hawthorne will have a few copies, and um, Younger Son Bookshop in Yarraville. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much, um, hopefully makes it easy for you to get the copy, and if you would like me to email you the teacher resource pack, my um, contact details, um, well Susan can either give them to you, or I can, if I can work out how to add something to this presentation, I could write that down. Or my website has lots of information about refugees. Um, and if, if I can get the thing to focus. I've also got facts about refugees at the back that might just help for people who aren't quite sure themselves about what the laws are regarding refugees and whether they're even allowed to come to Australia. There's a lot of misinformation in the media about um, refugees. And I've, I have a, one of the other reasons why I wrote this book is I have a pen pal who's been on Manus for six years. He arrived when he was 19 and um, he still doesn't know when he's going to be allowed off. So I guess this is for him and for all the other men, women and children who are still waiting. Um, so that's, um, yeah, that's a grain of hope. Thanks for listening. I hope it's not been too difficult <laughs> and annoying. Um, on a digital version instead of in the in the flesh person, I, would, I really would have maybe one day I'll be able to make it to the Mel Melbourne to get to get to one of these readings. But um, yeah, that's a grain of hope, and thanks very much for listening. I hope you find it useful in your library. Thank you. Bye.
I feel like I'm the comic relief, really. Because oh, sorry. It's just serious. No, so, so, yes, no it it's true. It sorry. It, no, it was excellent. So, but it is a bit heavy. But so I'm going to open with a boy who wants to be a dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, though, although I will talk about kids who did too. But I'm so excited about this book because it just arrived. It's actually not out yet. It's officially released 3rd of June. And the Wonderful Kids Bookshop got some special advanced copies. I only got my copies last week. So I'm still kind of squee. This is something you do with a new book. You go, oh, oh. You know, this is, sorry. Um, but this is actually interesting in that it ties into kids who did quite deeply. Both the books have two dedications in the front. And the first dedication is to one of my kids, who is really a kid who did and is a kid who does. And that's Billy Murray. And Billy was one of those interesting little kids, and you possibly you know them, the ones who want to be dogs, or cats, or rabbits, or unicorns. You know these kids? Yeah, I had one of them, like, it was serious. Billy's wanting to be a dog so deeply was actually quite a problem for us when he was because he stopped talking and would only bark um, in his <laughs> desire to get a dog. And now we have a three-year-old grandson who at family dinners crawls under the table and licks people's legs. So it seemed like a perennial theme to revisit. I'm, just, I'm not going to read the whole book to you because I'll leave surprises um, and the exploration of the beautiful illustrations by Karen Blair. You might not be familiar with Karen's work yet. She's a Western Australian illustrator and she's worked with Margaret Wilde, Raymond Casely. She wrote some, uh, illustrated Something Wonderful, which was on the CBCA shortlist a couple of years ago. Um, Baby Beat, she's done a lot. Of, she has a lovely feel for little kids, so I'm pretty excited by her illustrations. She put out a call on Facebook for dog models for the book and Inside Four Hours had 800 dogs <laughs> pictures sent to her. So, hence the um, portraits in the front. But I'll just give you a little taste of what Billy was like. Billy loved dogs. Big dogs, little dogs, old dogs and puppies. Billy loved them all. He especially loved Fluff, who belonged to Mrs. Banerjee next door. If Billy had a dog of his own, he knew he would love her forever and Ever. God, please, please, please have a dog. A dog is a big responsibility, said Dad. Would you walk it every day and wash it if it got dirty? I would, I promise, said Billy. Dogs are a lot of work, said Mum. Would you feed it and clean up its messes? I would, I promise, said Billy. I'm sorry, Billy, said Mum. Maybe when you're older said Dad. The next morning, Billy felt a bit cheeky. What are you doing, Billy? asked Dad. Woof, said Billy. Get up on a chair and eat your breakfast, said Mum. Woof, said Billy. This is silly, Billy, said Mum. But she put Billy's bowl on the floor. Anyway, I'm not going to read you the whole thing. I'm going to leave you surprises. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really mean at you, but I'm just going to show you one of my favourite spreads in it, which is Dad taking Billy for a walk. 
and this is a true story. <laughs> Billy took things into his own paws. Um, but I, I'm going to give us a plot spoiler and just share the last page with you. And I will love you forever and ever, said Billy. Woof, said Boots. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, Billy's thrilled with it and a little bit embarrassed um, <laughs> because he's now 33 and, <laughs> and doesn't really want to be parentally associated with his dog, three-year-old self. But when I was working on this book, actually the original version of this book in 1997, Billy was only 12 and some of you may have come across a book called Tough Stuff. Tough Stuff was published in 98. It was my third book. This is my 23rd book. So there's been a lot of writing in between. But Tough Stuff was a big adventure in some ways. It was the first book I wrote that wasn't a commission. I went to Alan and Alan said, I really want to write a book about inspiring children. And while I was working on it, I interviewed lots and lots of different people. I interviewed Holocaust survivors. I interviewed Ruby Hunter the indigenous singer who, um, Nangajiri woman, fabulous uh, story about being one of the stolen generations and such a moving person to talk to. And while I was working on it, actually particularly when I was working on Ruby's story, Billy got incredibly ill and we didn't know what was wrong with him. We went up in the children's hospital and we were sitting in emergency together and a very insensitive intern came in and said, well, listen, Billy's pancreas is stuffed. He's got type 1 diabetes. Yeah, I know, I know. Would you say that? I was sitting there, I was holding Billy's hand. Uh, he was thin as a rake. And the insensitive intern left the room. And I looked at Billy and he looked at my face. He said, Mum, don't worry. He said, it's going to be good because now, I have, now I've got to do something really great with my life. Because I have to show that having diabetes doesn't stop you. He said, I'll be like, I'll be like Howard Florey. I thought, well, I'd just finished a book on Howard Florey, so, you know. And I thought, how can, I mean, I was crying, really, even telling that story is kind of hard, but um, Billy did get on top of it. He was actually a fabulous person to learn about diabetes with. And as I said, he's 33 now. When he was 12, his idea, the great thing he was going to do, was he was going to um, play football for Geelong, because at that stage he played football for Fitzroy, and he was also going to play his violin in the MCG at the grand final. He told me this while we were sitting in hospital, that this was the great thing he was going to do, and that he, that he was going to play the national anthem on his violin, and then he was going to run through the banner and win the grand final. Anyway, um, eventually he had to choose between football and music. He chose music, and he's actually a classical violist who lives in Berlin. So he's out here at the moment for a concert on the 20th of May. If you'd like to... No, don't tell him, don't tell him I told you. Um, and please don't say woof to him. But, <laughs> Uh, he's doing a program of classical chamber music at the United Church in Carlton on the 20th of May. But So this book, as tough stuff, was around for 20 years. And then this year is its 20th anniversary. Because it actually came out in 99. Actually, I started working on it in 97. But in, it came out in April 19, 
1999. And then when the anniversary was coming up, it's never gone out of print in 20 years. The book actually had an amazing life. The original book, Tough Stuff, was translated into Chinese, Italian, it was published in the States. It actually sold more in its fourth year than it did in its first year, which was really unusual for any book, particularly nonfiction. And it just wouldn't die. And lots of people in it died. And I wanted to update it. And I kept saying to Alan Alman, let me know when you want to put that out of print and I'll do a new edition. But it just wouldn't go out of print. So last year we had a meeting and they said, look, why don't you just do a new edition now and we'll pull it off the shelves so you, hopefully you can't buy tough stuff anymore. Um, and I sat down and I thought, well, what stories have travelled? What stories do I still really love? Which stories do I need to revisit? And Ruby Hunter was one of them because sadly we've lost her since the original edition. Um, and a few of the other people, their lives had changed, they'd moved on, they'd grown up. And so I needed to revisit the stories. But as I was working on it, I realised there were so many more stories. So there are now 11 new stories, a whole new chapter on climate justice warriors. And it's actually quite a different book. It's a new book. It's not the same book. It's still dedicated to Billy but also to his nephew, Louis Henning, my, my grandson. <laughs> um, so I'm going to give you a, a little taste. How are we going for time? Oh, good. We're all right. What time do you want me to finish, Don? Okay, all right. So to give you a little taste of the story, it's got nine stories of Australian kids, and one of the new stories in the book is the story of Peddling Man. Has anybody ever heard of Peddling Man? <gasps> You're going to hear about Peddling Man. Peddling Man is incredible. So when Pedalyn Mann was 12 years old, she was in the Northern Territory with a friend of the family. I'm going to skip some of the story and cut to um, a particular moment. On a bright, clear morning, Hilton, her friend, who's in his 20s, and Pedalyn Mann travelled 20 kilometres south to where her family kept a boat for touring. And the two of them spent a happy afternoon exploring the mangrove swamps. At nightfall, as they were heading back to Hilton's four-wheel drive truck, their boat accidentally grounded on a sandbank. Hilton climbed out to push it clear. As he jumped into the shallow water, his pistol fell from its holster and he knelt down to search for it in the muddy water. That's when the crocodile attacked. Hilton barely had time to raise his arm in defence before a snapping bite broke it in two places. He struggled to his feet, but the four-metre crocodile lunged again, this time closing its powerful jaws around his right thigh and dragging him into deeper water. 13-year-old, oh, sorry, 12-year-old Petalin man watched in horror. But when Hilton cried for help, she fearlessly leapt into the water. Grabbing Hilton's uninjured arm, uninjured arm she dug her heels into the mud and pulled with all her might. The crocodile, not to be so quickly outwitted, went into a death roll, sweeping Pedalin off her feet and dragging both her and Hilton underwater. They whirled and thrashed in the murky water swamp, but Pedalin wouldn't give in and she wouldn't let go. Regaining her footing, she managed to get Hilton's head above water and she dragged both man and crocodile back to the bank. A few steps from the shore, the crocodile let Hilton go. But as he staggered away, it lunged out of the water again, closing its huge jaws around his hips. For a moment, 
it looked as if the crocodile was going to win. But Petalin was stubborn. Wrenching Hilton from the mouth of the croc before it could establish its grip, she dragged the man up the bank. Petalin found a safe spot for Hilton 50 metres from the water and raced back to the truck. With incredible presence of mind, she drove into the swamp, got her injured friend into the truck and drove back to the safari base camp. There was no one there, so Petalin covered Hilton's wounds with antiseptic powder and wrapped him in a sheet. Next, she radioed ahead, helped Hilton back into the trunk, truck, jumped behind the wheel and set off for Darwin 200 kilometres away. Whoa. I know, whoa. She's a, she was like this big. She was 12 years old, tiny little lightweight cutie pie who can wrestle with crocodiles. Anyway, that's a true story. Every story in this book is true. Um, Petter Lindman's story was actually from 1981. But some of the new characters in it, I interviewed kids all around the world. I interviewed characters like Gittinger, Gitanjali Rao. Gitanjali Rao lives in the States, but if you want to actually feel good about being alive, Google her and look at her TED talk in Chennai. When she was nine years old, she started working on a device called Tethys, which can test for lead in water. She's a child genius and she's an incredible human being. She's now 14 years old, but I corresponded with her and her mother to write her story. Or Felix Finkbeiner. Has anybody heard of Felix Finkbeiner? You've got to remember Felix Finkbeiner. Felix Finkbeiner, and look at his UN talk, because he spoke at the UN about climate change, and he was so brilliant. I also interviewed Felix. We corresponded for a while. He told me about how he got started in 2007 when he was nine years old. He did a project on polar bears and climate change, and was so appalled at the idea that his favourite animal was under threat that he started an organisation called Plant for the Planet. He said, by the time I'm 18, I want to plant one million trees. By the time he was 13, he was responsible for one million trees. By the time he was 18, he was responsible for the planting of 15.2 billion trees. He is an amazing human being. He's 21 now. But I'm just going to read you one last paragraph. It's like two seconds. Two seconds. You've got two seconds. Okay. So there was a small crabapple tree when he started his project. His mother bought a crabapple tree and planted, he planted it in the schoolyard of his primary school. The small crabapple tree in the schoolyard in Stunberg looks a little forlorn, but it's an important symbol of the power of children to make a difference. Felix has said that if he'd known how important that single tree would become, he would have asked his mother to buy something majestic like a fir tree. But perhaps the fact that it's a small tree shows how big things can grow from the seed of an idea. One tree alone might not mean much, but when kids work together, they can plant forests. As Felix Finkbeiner said in his speech to the United Nations in New York, one mosquito cannot do anything against a rhino but a thousand mosquitoes can make a rhino change direction. I hope you are in, as inspired by the kids in Kids Who Did and can give it to all the kids you know so that they can be kids who do and get an idea about, not about being famous, 
but about the single gesture that can change somebody's life or the act of kindness that can transform your own life. So, thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry, I know we could hear from everyone for hours. It's hard, isn't it? But I think we're hearing out some really important books this afternoon. Oh, sorry. Um, and to finish off the evening, we have the wonderful Kristen Gill representing with her with her kids' bookshop hat on. Kids' bookshop. Ten books in ten minutes. I'm going to try and do it in under. Ten books in six minutes. All right. <laughs> God, I've set the alarm. Okay. Most of you will know this book. It's a favourite of mine. I, I, I love anthologies because I think there is something in an anthology for every reader, actually. Um, I just quickly want to read you this little bit. Um, sorry. Our voices are strong, our roots run deep, and our stories are powerfully diverse. We've grown up on potato farms in country Western Australia and suburban rentals across New South Wales and in housing commission homes in the valleys of Tasmania. Paraphrasing now. Our families are separated and strong, volatile and loving. Our lives and stories are just as ordinary, extraordinary, joyous and devastating as those of any other group of Australians and they deserve to be written into Australian letters. It's just such an important anthology and there's something in there for every reader, as I said. Brand new, um, Melinda Gates, The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World. And I just think that title alone says so much and uh, deserves to be in um, libraries for older readers. And I just wanted to, she talks about giving women a moment of lift. She compares it to being in an aeroplane as you're taking off and describes the fact that when she used to be on planes with the kids, they would, you know, say wheels, 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 wheels while, the, while it was um, heading out. And the moment it lifted off, they all went lift, lift, lift. And that's how she kind of um, describes this moment where we should be giving women lift. Um, how can we summon a moment of lift for human beings and especially for women? Because when you lift up women, you lift up humanity. And how can we create a moment of lift in human hearts so that we all want to lift up women? Because sometimes that's all that's needed to lift women up, uh, because sometimes all that's needed to lift women up is to stop pulling them down. This is going to be a really important book, and I think there is something, again, in there for all readers, not just female readers. Uh, you probably know from previous times when I've um, talked about new books that I am a huge Rob Newton fan. Don't tell my husband, probably got a bit of a crush on him too. <laughs> um, he knows. Um, Promise Me Happy is just out this week and Rob spoke at um, Lamont, I think, last night about it. He's very passionate about this book. The title of this book before it was um, it called Promise Me Happy was The Good Bits Are Always Marked in Green Fluoro. In Fluoro Green. And that's because uh, Nate, the... Um, the main protagonist is let out of juvie and um, all the bits on his form are marked in fluoro green about what he's done, what he is, who he is, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Anyway, he's out of juvenile detention and trying to make a life for himself. This is a book that is hugely romantic. It is sad. It does deal with grief and loss. It is a coming-of-age book it is a book about identity and belonging, um, and it is, in true Rob Newton style, absolutely beautiful. His um, ability to write about people and landscapes 
Australian landscapes in particular is, is you know, really extraordinary. He didn't win the Prime Minister's Award for when we were two for no reason. He is a beautiful writer and this is one of the best things he's done. Love this because it's seven stories in one, you know, one single volume. So that is just ideal for a lot of readers. Um, did you know that the puffer nibbles are back? Well, they were Aussie nibbles and they're now called um, uh, puffer nibbles. And oh, right. do you remember these? They are ideal for that kind of year two, three, four readers um, or just the first chapter book thing. You know, absolutely perfect. Great yeah, stories. Young readers in secondary too. Young readers in secondary, that's right. Actually, um, hopefully we'll get the Aussie Bites out too, which, which would extend the, um, the range of stories for those older, more reluctant readers too. So, um, beautiful stories written by Australian authors, um, highly regarded, highly respected Australian authors. So they are a 9.99 each, great. Um, you know about the tales of Mr Walker, the beautiful dog at the park, Hyatt in Melbourne, and the first book of course was one volume, and now we have individual um, volumes that we can put into lit circles, just onto library shelves, but hugely appealing stories, and the idea that they are connected to a dog that exists and has a, a, um, a function in a hotel as a... Um, a friend for guests and tourists and um, anyone who's staying at the hotel is gorgeous, I think. Also a lovely connection to the Guide Dogs Victoria as well. My Culture and Me, Greg Dries. Has anyone, or Dries I think you say actually, has anyone had Greg to their school? Then you should try and get Greg to school. He's actually based in Brisbane but he does travel around a lot to do work in schools. He is fabulous. He is all singing, all dancing, all language, all, and this is a celebration of all of that. And he's sharing his story. He's sharing his story of the land, of his culture, um, you know, fabulous stuff for visual literacy. I think there is lots and lots that can be done with this book at every year level, actually. It's, it's you know, it's his story. And in a, in a year where we're talking about um, Indigenous languages, that's going to also be a, an important book. I live, love this one because it's lovely, a lovely um, story about um, thinking and curiosity and uh, asking the difficult questions and trying to find the answers. So um, have a look at that, gorgeous illustrations. Love this one for very, very young ones, talking about you know, language and um, uh, being a bit silly with it. So there's lots you could actually do with this in the classroom, I think, or the library, about crazy language ideas and just being a bit adventurous and, and crazy. And this one you will know from being in hardback, it's now in paperback, um, if I was Prime Minister. And my favourite, it's, so it's a collection of little um, snippets of, of children saying if they were Prime Minister, what they would do. Absolutely gorgeous premise, I think, and obviously hugely topical right now. <laughs> um, so, and probably a lot of these kids could do a better job. Um, <laughs> let's face it. Oh, this is my favourite one. Um, I'm Arav. If I was Prime Minister, I would invite all the leaders of the other countries down to Australia to jump on my trampoline and eat cupcakes. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, we'd definitely be friends. <laughs> That's all from me. Thanks. Oh,
It was ten, but it was ten. Yeah, there was some that were multiple. Oh, I see, I see, yes. Look, thank you, everybody. I hope you really enjoyed that. I hope you found something that you can use in your school with your students. It's wonderful to see you all here. Um, please do have something to eat on the way out, look at the bookshop, but otherwise, safe travels. Hope to see you again. Thank you very much.